But if you have 1 Kings open, I just read a few verses. Some of you may remember that some weeks ago when I last spoke here, we looked at the crisis that Elijah went through when he uh, suddenly was stressed out, had nothing more to give. And we acknowledge the reality that that can happen in the 21st century too. You can be stressed out. And then he had an extraordinary fresh meeting with Jesus. He had a fresh meeting with God who just expressed his love to him again, put him back on his feet again, established him again. And one of the things he said to him, which was what we concluded with, was, now go to Elisha. He will be a prophet in your place. That didn't mean immediately. That wasn't like, good night, come on, Elisha. It was some years. Commentators say probably 10 years of overlap of life together, which we're going to be looking at tonight. And uh, we're putting together, actually, this commission and then... Elijah's been called up into heaven supernaturally. But actually it was a, probably a 10-year period. You can read other things that Elijah did. There was the encounter with Naboth in the uh, vineyard and so on. He was uh, with Ahab right, in Naboth's vineyard. There was other things he did, but I'm just going to put these two together, wind up uh, the series. Seems appropriate at the end of the year. And uh, we're looking then at 1 Kings 19. Just read a few verses at the end there from verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother Then I'll follow you. He said to him, go back again. What have I done to you? He returned from following him, took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen, gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Then into 2 Kings and chapter 2, please. And it came about... When the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I'll not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Don't you know the Lord's going to take away your master from over you today? He said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here. For the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I'll not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know? The Lord will take away your master from over you today. He said, yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. He said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I'll not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, folded it together, and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over 
on dry ground. And when they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated them. Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, returned, stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he'd struck the waters, they were divided here and there. And Elijah crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw, they said, The Spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Father, thank you so much for the high privilege of being in your glorious presence. We thank you for this season of Christmas when we recall that you came in glory, Lord Jesus. You came light shining. You came filling the sky with light and angel voices. We thank you tonight. We can join in their song, as it were, singing glory to God in the highest. Thank you for this immense privilege that we, who were so blind, so ignorant of God, can now come and celebrate you. Thank you for ever opening our eyes in your mercy. And Father, we pray right now in Jesus' name, would you please teach us tonight? Would you take truth, communicate it to our inner man, bring about response in our heart, We pray, would you be powerfully active by the power of your Spirit in this meeting now for our good and for your great glory. We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been looking at a story. I love the Bible stories. I have always enjoyed following the story of a character, the unfolding of his relationship with God, how God gives him uh, direction or her direction, unfolds the story. It's a blessing. But the story comes to an end, inevitably, and it's important for us to see that any human story has an end, but that doesn't mean it's the end of God's story. Every human story, be it Moses, be it Joshua, be it Elisha, these are just part of something much, much bigger that God is doing. And so it's important for us to see that as Elijah's life is winding down, God has got his next plan to press on. And indeed, as you look through First and Second Kings, you see God is looking for this. He's looking for the ultimate king. Men are looking for the ultimate king, which we can now celebrate coming up to Christmas. God has sent the ultimate king, the reigning Lord. And uh, this, all of history keeps moving on, moving on, until this great king who came once, born in Bethlehem, will come again, resplendent in glory, to make new heavens, new earth, and usher in eternal day. Hallelujah. We are part of a much, much bigger story. So no one must think the story is about them, 
As we all song, love that song, it's all about me, Jesus. No, it's all about God. It's all about his purpose breaking through. And so Elijah, yes, he's moving on. His day is concluding. And Elisha is going to move in. It's a short-sighted perspective of life that says, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the attitude of people who don't understand. It's not just about your little life. It's about a great, great plan. Even great statesmen like Winston Churchill say, no, 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 see it again, it's the historical backdrop. What is happening in the earth? We can see it even from a higher view. What is God doing in the earth? There's a much bigger plan. I wonder if you have become aware of the bigger plan of God, whether you're looking forward to Christmas with any kind of understanding that Jesus came and gave meaning to life. Well, here we see this handover moment. It's interesting just to back up and notice that in the Jewish culture, they were really taught from the beginning to think in terms of generations passing on their patrimony, their life, their worldview to the next generation. That what God had taught them, you pass on. That was right in the culture. So fathers would teach sons. Even when the Passover happened, perhaps the greatest event in Israel's history, when this two million slave community in Egypt, been there for generations, beaten up, just forced to work, without help, without any kind of resource, then came Moses and deliverance. And out they went uh, from Egypt. And as they went through this Passover season, they were taught, even before it happened, when you go from here, you must remember this every year, and you must teach your children. And they had to enact a kind of little play in the home where they had a meal and you eat it in a certain way and, and you stand with ready to go, staff in your hand, and you remember the day the Lord brought us out. Have this worldview. Understand, God delivered us. We used to be slaves. We're not anymore. And remembering that, you start now in a process that God is at work on that's going to be global one day. So remember where you've come from, son. And it was, you had, the son had to ask questions of the father. It was kind of a liturgy in the home as they ate the Passover. And ultimately, also, of course, their sense of destiny. You are going on to a great inheritance. So there's a passing on from generation to generation. It was very much in the culture. It helped them to remember, this is your identity. This is our worldview. This is who we are. This is our sense of destiny for us as a people. So they were taught in the Ten Commandments, honor your father, honor your mother. Don't be dismissive, ah, old generation, they don't know what they're talking about. No, honor them. There's a a passing on of truth that will do you good. And then the book of Proverbs, that wisdom literature in the Bible, you'll find the book of Proverbs again and again. There's a recurring statement, my son, hear my instruction. Just repeatedly there, sons, hear your father's instruction. There's a passing on of information from generation to generation. And then again, you get these occasions where great figures pass on to the next. So Moses is told to call Joshua, lay hands on him, charge and instruct him, and hand over to Joshua. Similarly, you find here the story we're looking at tonight, Elijah passing over to Elisha. Interesting, perhaps the most significant, these two who appeared 
on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, perhaps the clearest of the passing on from generation to generation. In the New Testament, we find Paul says, receive Timothy. He's been like a son working with a father. He knows my ways in Christ. Receive him like you'd receive me. That passing on to another emerging generation. So, today we're looking at Elijah and Elisha. Now, before we get into the story, I'd just like to ask, how is this relevant to us in the 21st century church? What is it then? What is this saying to us? Well, let's remember, after Jesus lived his perfect, spotless, innocent, magnificent life and was crucified, God raised him from the dead and gave him all authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He said to the twelve whom he had trained, his twelve disciples, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Bring in my government right across the nations. Do it by discipling people. Make disciples of all the nations. Now, disciple is a, a kind of religious word, isn't it? It's one of those words that you don't immediately know what it means. It's like deacon, pastor, elder. You think, What's, what, what are they? That's not in my normal conversation. It's not like ordinary words, you know, like chair or elephant. It's a disciple. What's a disciple? Do I need, like, the nativity play? Do I need to get a dressing gown, something over my head? How do I become a disciple? Do I grow a beard, get sandals? No, actually... Actually, a friend of mine wrote a book called Go and Make Apprentices. Probably that captures the word for us in our modern world. An apprentice. What is an apprentice? Well, the dictionary says an apprentice is one who is bound to another to learn a craft. Bound to another to learn a craft. So somebody might become an electrician's apprentice. He works with someone who is skilled experienced, and learns alongside, till in the end he can do it as well. That's the whole principle of making disciples. Jesus did that. Jesus did that with his twelve. Perhaps one of the most striking illustrations of his doing that is in John and chapter 13. Let me just remind you of very familiar words where one day Jesus is going himself to celebrate the Passover He's going to do this thing, remembering where we came from, remembering our heritage. And he's got this dozen disciples now. And they're going up to Jerusalem. They want to celebrate the Passover. But they don't have a home, so they don't have a servant. They have a room. And they arrive at the room, and normally, if you arrived at a home, there'll be a servant there. Maybe like you'd have at a, 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 a good hotel, there would be a guy there who'd take your car and just drive it, a valet, drive your car away. Okay, so I'll bring those your keys, you'll get your car later. And uh, when you went to someone's home, there'd be a, a servant who would wash your feet. You came with sandals, through dirty streets, mud maybe. And one of the first things would happen as you arrived, that someone would wash your feet. But on this occasion, they'd come to a house where... There was no home, there was no, it was just a house, no, just a room, and uh, no, no servant. So they're all there having their meal, and during the meal it says Jesus arose. And Jesus took off his outer garment, clothed himself with a towel, and took the servant part. He washed their feet. He did the thing the servant would have done. 
And after he's done it, it says this, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord? You do right, I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, so ought also you to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did for you. Truly, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, or one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So here's Jesus making apprentices. He's modeling something, saying, I'm your teacher, but listen, I'm not just teaching you Bible verses. I'm teaching you a lifestyle. I'm teaching you what a master and teacher and Lord is like in my kingdom. He washes feet. You've seen what I do. I've done it as an example. I'm apprenticing you. I'm making you disciples. Now go and make disciples. Go transfer the values. Go multiply this lifestyle. Go and be my disciples, lighting up the world, carrying this message and this style with you. So Jesus made disciples. He did it with a group. He gathered 12 to him. It's apparent from the day of Pentecost, there were 120 in the upper room. 120 that were in the kind of group. When Jesus turned up in town, it's Jesus, 12, and others. It says women traveled with them. Others who financially helped them as they went on their way. There was a, it was like a group, that church town turned up. Jesus and his original traveling church turned up. He said, now go and make disciples. What they did, instinctively, actually, if you look at the Bible, is they went and planted churches. They're making their response to the command, go and make disciples. The way they did it was go and plant churches. Not in order to invent churchgoers. That's a modern phrase, isn't it? I'm a churchgoer. means little more than sitting in here. Jesus said, go and make apprentices. Go and make disciples. Go and get alongside and shape lives. Go and teach them the way I've taught you. And so it was done in a corporate life together. They were learning together to be shaped. Now you go and do it. Jesus said, I've made you disciples. Now you go and make disciples. And then you'll see in perhaps the uh, letter in the New Testament that says more about the church than any other letter, that's Ephesians. It says in chapter 4, he ascended on high. We'll come to that later on in this story as Elijah ascended. We find Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And it says he gave them to equip the saints for works of service. So that in the church, discipling is happening in a corporate context. We are being together equipped. And Ephesians says so that together we come to maturity. So we're no longer like little children being tossed around, but we come to a mature man. It's like you do it together. It's like you're all one man. You're many members of one man. So they're going to plant churches, but actually with a view of changing lives, transforming people, making them 
apprentices equipped to do ministry. That's what's happening. That's what the church is. It's working in obedience to Jesus. It's interesting that the word that is used, uh, it says equip in Ephesians 4.11 in most translations. Some translations say prepare. The word that's used, the Greek word, can be used in many, many different ways as it happens. And it's quite interesting to see how it's used. For instance, it's the very word that's used when Jesus called the initial group of fishermen to be his disciples, and it says they were mending their nets. And the word, the Greek word that's used is they were preparing. It's the same word. They were restoring their nets. What does that mean? It means, well, this net had been thrown in the sea, and maybe it got torn, damaged. Maybe there were some crabs in there. Get that out, sew that together again. And so this word can mean restore what's broken. Making disciples has got that about it sometimes. It's restoring. People have been damaged. People have been deeply hurt by life, torn. Ah, that was so painful. What, is there any help? Yeah, there's help for you. Let me help disciple you. Let me help restore you. So part of equipping has to do with mending people, putting them together again. The word is used in Galatians 6 verse 1. It says, if anyone is overtaken in a sin or caught in a sin, it means kind of trapped. Anyone, whoops, I got my foot caught. If anyone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, that doesn't mean the elite, the elders. It means you, others, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you may not be tempted. That's a beautiful atmosphere, isn't there, in that phrase, in that verse. If someone's caught, what happened? Oh, I just got into this. I shouldn't have got into it. I, I built this relationship. I've done this. And now financially or relationally, or I'm in a mess. I let you, the rest of you, restore them. With, wow, what do you think you're doing with a spirit of vindictive? No, a spirit of gentleness. Being careful, lest you should get tempted as well, knowing, hey, I could get caught. I'm just as vulnerable. But that's making disciples. That's equipping the saints. That's, how do I equip? Well, I help people who've got snared up. Someone who was going well, and now look what's happened. That's part of discipling. Equipping, preparing, mending nets, mending people, restoring them. The word is translated prepare as well, getting people ready. Equipping them with understanding, giving them insight, understand, oh, I hadn't realized. Yeah, let me help you understand. You'll know the truth. The truth will free you. Tell me more truth. Yeah, we set up classes and courses so you can know more. We want to see you restored, set free, rebuilt. So yes, we'll put those sort of courses together. We want to prepare you until another word that is used to translate the same Greek word is complete. Bring you to completion. So in 2 Corinthians 13, 9, Paul says, We pray for you that you may be made complete. Jesus said in Luke 6, 40, Everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. If you're fully trained, you can do what your teacher does. Complete. God wants to bring us to maturity. Go and make apprentices. Go and bring people who haven't a clue into effectiveness. 
People who, yeah, you're saved. At the moment you're saved, it happens overnight. It happens in a moment. You can be in a meeting like this. You didn't know there was a God. And suddenly you feel, no, God's speaking to me. I realize there is a God. You can be saved in a moment. It just happens. You don't have to do anything to earn it. As we were singing, it's grace. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has taken your guilt That's why he hung on a cross, the innocent, spotless, holy Son of God, smashed to a cross, defied, hated, spat upon, forsaken by heaven. Why? To take your sin and mine. And there comes a moment when you believe it, and you're free. You're a Christian now. And you're immediately brought into the family of God. But if you're like I was, you come straight into the family of God with all the sin you had. You're forgiven, but you've got a worldview, you've got attitudes to life, you've got preferences, you've got some pretty ugly lifestyle. God wants to apprentice you, to change you, to make you what you're not at the moment, to reform you by his spirit. And so we see that sort of thing happening, and it, it happens in training contexts. can happen somewhat now, as you're listening to preaching. We can be somewhat discipled through preaching. But that's not really like the training that God needs in our lives, we need in our lives. That's more like coaching. I was reading a soccer manual the other day. They were saying earlier in the week, you'll do a lot of with the ball kind of training. And uh, you learn more when you've got the ball at your feet, your skills, the choices you make. Do I pass there or there? And you learn, that's the better choice. That's, and you learn football skills, you learn with the ball. You're, it's when you're doing it, you learn the most. No, you shouldn't have done that. You should have trapped it, not two kicks, one kick. You learn all sorts of things doing it. And then they said, towards the end of the week, when we don't want any more accidents, we don't want someone to get injured with Saturday coming up, so towards the end of the week, it's more head training. It's more strategy training. It's a bit of head, well, we do a bit of head training here. But the real training... Is when you've got the ball at your feet. It's really when you're in the work. It's learning. That's why we're not terribly thrilled with Bible colleges here. I went to one. You go for three years of head training. You learn a lot more by being in work. So what we do in New Frontiers is train people in the work. It's not that we despise training. We train and we teach doctrines and we teach things. But it's while you're also learning how to handle people. So you don't go away with three years of information. Jesus taught as they were actually doing stuff. So here we get training, not just head training. And Jesus says, he that hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a man building his house on a rock. And when the storms come, because they do, Terrible, sad, tragic things happen in life. But if you learn the things that Jesus said and you do them, hey, I can stand in the storm. I can be a real disciple of Jesus. And so in a church like this, yeah, we're we're all the time trying to train people. We're trying to help people. You may have come in through the Alpha course. Well, great, you're in now. Perhaps you said, can I come on an Alpha table, please? I'd like to be there. I'd love to give my testimony. Maybe can I, can I be trained to lead an alpha table? Yes, of course you can. Wouldn't that be great? Or involved in beta. 
Or maybe you can get involved in one of the, the marriage preparation things because, wow, to get married is, I mean, it's, it's difficult. As statistics demonstrate, marriage is falling apart all over the place because people go into marriage, they don't know what they're going into. They need training. They need somebody who's had a successful marriage to say, can we share some stuff? You see, it says in the Bible, let the older women teach the younger. It's not like some heavy thing. It's not like it's heavily organized necessarily. It's just that we pass on. We pass on the information. We say, I've learned this. I've learned that. I've watched that happen with, actually, uh, Joel's wife, Kate, my daughter-in-law. I've just seen the way, the way she calls her older sister-in-law. She said, what do you do when? Now we've got another one, another kid. And what did you do? How did you do? And I hear her, I hear her ask. I'm so blessed to watch it. And says, there's a humility that says, please help me. It's important you learn that, dear friends. If we're going to learn, and we'll come on to this more and more as I'm going through, people won't crash into your life and say, hey, sort yourself out. You'll find... You need sometimes to open the door and say, I really think I need some help. I'm miles away from where my mother lives. You see, in former years, people would get married and they'd probably live around the block. And you could run back to mum. What do you do when? Now we move off, we go to college, we turn up somewhere else. Or it's funny listening to John and Alex when John a Ghanaian married a Brighton girl and the funny things they went through. When they first started, what, what, what's a birthday present? You haven't got me one. What is it? What are we talking about? You know, there are all kinds of strange tensions. And, and we need someone who will tell us, help us. That's what church is about, dear friends. It's not just calming and, whoa, what a great song. We got them really going tonight. Praise God for great meetings. But it's someone helping you form a life, form a marriage, form... I've got to be a father now. I remember when we first started, boy, I've got my own child. I remember Wendy saying, who's going to help me? I'm miles from my mum. How do you become a pastor's wife? What's that? We need help. And that's what the church is like. One passing on information to another. So there's lots of situations in church life, some more spontaneous than others. You can prepare to be a small group leader. <gasps> small group. Yeah, you can be trained for it. Or a zone leader. There's all sorts of things. There are realms where you can be helped to develop a skill. Some of them are visible. Some of them are behind the scenes. God wants us to be being trained. That's what we are. We're not merely churchgoers. Where do you go on Sundays? Oh, I go to. No, no, no. We're talking about being in a community where there's a lot of encouragement and discipling. In Romans 15, when Paul's summing up at the end of that wonderful epistle, right there at the end, he sums up and says, so accept one another as Christ accepted you. Right? So there's this church in the great center, Rome, where there's Jewish people, there's Gentile people, all their different backgrounds. He's saying, accept one another. That's the first statement. And then later in the chapter, he says, now you're full of goodness, You're full of knowledge, able to admonish one another. Now, you need to know you're accepted first. It's so wonderful to be a church flooded with understanding of grace. I'm accepted. I'm beloved, for Jesus' sake. And as Christ has accepted me, 
we accept one another. Because you're special? No, because he accepted you. And he accepted you. And he accepted me. Wow, we're in this together. So we accept one another. But that's not the end of it because it says also admonish one another. In other words, speak to one another. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to speak into someone's life. I was very grateful the other day. I was in a meal and I was going on to speak on a platform and someone said to me, you've got cream on your face. So I said, thank you so much. And I was going to stay on this platform, you know, so I cream here. <laughs> but, you know, it takes a bit of courage. Do I tell them? Is it their problem? No, I'm so glad. Said, hey, you've got cream. Oh, thank you. But, you know, it can be a bit more personal, can't it? It could be... Do you ever listen to your wife? You don't seem to. Wow, who's going to say that to you? You seem to just ignore her. You seem to take her for granted. Or do you ever watch out for your kids? Or your kids don't seem to do what you say to them? Well, excuse me, that's my private space. Well, if you want to be a disciple and you want to build a family that brings you peace and joy not one that brings you anguish and embarrassment. It would be great to have someone say to you, look, this is how you train them. This is how you get their attention. You make sure, no, I didn't just shout at you, I spoke to you. Come on, look at me, eye to eye. This is what I said to you. Did you understand? You teach people how to train. You just, oh, you horrible children, I've taught you everything I know and you still know nothing. <laughs> we need help. And so we open ourselves up, not for religious stuff, life. We find life in the body. We accept one another. We also admonish one another if you've got enough relationship. Most of us would need probably to give permission to people because people are not going to take the liberty of stepping into your life. Such people are a bit scary, aren't they? But you need people close enough Maybe in your small group. Maybe another housewife who lives quite near to you. Have a kind of arrangement. Can you help me? Can we? You seem further ahead than me. It says in the Bible, let the older women teach the younger. So it's like, go and make disciples. Let the older women teach the younger. How to? It's just life. Encouraging people to have success in their home, in their friendships, in the handling of money. How do I handle money? Well, get with somebody who's done it, who can help you. Really, you need to get connected. If you're not connected yet, if you just turn up here sometimes, you're most welcome, we're delighted. We love having guests here. But for real benefit, you need to get connected. You get this card off that chair in front of you, write your name at the end, stick it in the box, say, please draw me in, I'm a bit shy, I'm a bit scared, but will you help me and we'll help you. You can find context where you can be helped, where someone can help form your life and get you being a disciple of Jesus. Okay, so that's the kind of, this is the setting for us. This is how it works today. We're not just looking at an ancient story, Elijah and Elisha, who on earth were they? We're talking about life. We're seeing that this was in the Bible, that in the Old Testament, the older people taught their children. Well, they were one nation under one blood, one family. It all came from Abraham. This is a family. We are scattered people. We've come from all over the world. There's many different nationalities in this room now. 
People come from all over the place. How do we, we need a common culture? How do you learn that culture? Well, we do it the Bible way. We take what Jesus said, his wonderful revelation, these words of mine. No one spoke like this man. And we help feed it into one another's lives. And we need someone who's just a bit further down the track. My life's been so helped by guys a little further down the track who said, can we pray together? I'd love that. Can we do that? Yes, please. People take initiatives. This is how it is. So let's come back to the story then. Let's come back to Elijah and Elisha, seeing that against the backdrop of what we've just looked at. So first of all, let's notice this. It's God who initiated the idea. It wasn't that Elijah thought, boy, I'm nearly finished here. I better find somebody. I might wonder if I can find someone. If I could only somehow. No, it's not Elijah's idea. And nor is it Elisha's. It's not Elisha's kind of starry-eyed, oh, if only I could be with. No, it's come down from heaven. It's God's idea. Now, actually, that gives such clout and weight to the whole concept. God initiated the process. Similarly, in the New Testament, Jesus initiated. He selected. He chose those whom he desired to be with him. He initiated the whole thing. And if God initiates, God helps. God enables. He tells you to do anything God tells you to do, he helps you do. He doesn't say, do that, I won't be anywhere around. Jesus said, go and make disciples, I'll be with you all the time. So there's a, God's helping us in doing it. So you find with Jesus, he's discipling these 12. And one day he says to them, who do people say I am? This great mystery. Who are we following? Who is he really? Who do people say I am? Some, well, some say this, some say that. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, you're so blessed, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. My Father in heaven has revealed it. What does that mean? It means Peter is being discipled by Jesus, but... God steps in and speaks to the disciple. It isn't that if you're being discipled, everything you learn has to come from the discipler. You still are drawing personally on God. God can speak to you. God, it's not just that you have to. Oh, the only he tells me, if he hasn't told me, I don't know. I'm just following him. No, it's not like that. God's the initiator. God is involved. God speaks. We are cooperating with God as we're making disciples. We're praying for people. And sometimes you'll be praying and suddenly think, wow, they've understood. Like Paul said to me, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart will be open. You'll come to see. I'm praying for you. I'm telling you. While I'm telling you, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that you'll get revelation. Ah, you've seen it. Great. Because I can tell you, but somehow there's something about Christian truth that needs revelation. And so I'm praying for you as well. And Jesus found that his disciples, whoa, you're the Christ. Great. I didn't tell you. I wanted you to find that. I'm demonstrating things I'm wanting for you to discover. So discipling is an adventure. It's not cold, oh, you do it, I do it. Learn by rote. It's life. God's involved. Secondly, God set the goal. God said he will be a prophet in your place. Now, it's interesting that there, in doing that, he brings definition and purpose to the discipling relationship. He will be a prophet 
in your place, right? There's your purpose, there's your structure, that's what you're doing with him. You're helping him to become that. So, in teaching about discipling, we're not giving a structure where people are permanently locked under somebody's authority. You're under him from now on. You joined our church, you're under him, he'll tell you. Right, next one, you're under her. You're, no, it's not like that. It's not you're under. I say that because, well, oh, a couple of decades ago, there was actually a very, very successful, powerful movement which grew and grew and grew out of the USA, actually, and it was called the Discipleship Movement. And it was headed up by some really, to be honest, terrific guys, great preachers, some tremendous values. But the way it got worked out in the churches that were associated with the discipleship, or sometimes called shepherding movement, was that you tended to get locked in, he's over you. And that was the language that was often used. He's over you, he'll tell you. Who, uh, and if you're good, you can be over someone. So it was a kind of chain of command. Church is full of chains of command. And, and before you did anything, you kind of checked it out. Have you been, have you been okay to do that? Did you, you, you be, be okay? Is it, did you ask? And the whole atmosphere became kind of, am I allowed to? And you better get permission for. And, and I so honor him. He's so wise, and I'm not. And I better clear it. And it, it became sadly, I say sadly, because some of the teaching on family life and integrity, uh, are just fabulous teaching. But sadly, the way it was done left you kind of in a straitjacket and asking permission and saying, I'm a disciple. That's not the feel of the Bible at all. The purpose is not permanent subordination, but preparation for usefulness. We're not saying get permanently lined up under that woman. She'll tell you how to live. See you later. No, it's not like that. There are helpful people to encourage, not to lock us in, not to turn us into clones. The goal here was to help this guy become a prophet. That was the specific goal. There may be lots of different goals in, in different times of discipling. You may enter into different phases and, of discipling. Somebody may help you in the beginning to read the Bible, to pray. How do you pray? Let me pray with you. Later, someone may say, would you like to lead a small group? How do you do that? Someone will come alongside at different times to help you through, to apprentice you into. We need apprenticing. It doesn't all fall out of heaven. We need apprenticing. We also get revelation. We need to see that's the balance. Next, you see, Elijah was the one who set the ball rolling. He was the one who threw a mantle. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a kind of quaint, old-fashioned sort of thing for us. He threw a mantle? What's that mean? Well, it means he didn't throw a book. <laughs> Read this. Somehow he engaged with him. The mantle seems to speak of his prophetic mantle. It has something to do with his gift, his calling, who he was in God, Elijah, this man of God. Somehow this mantle represented it. And, he, and it says he threw it over Elisha. I read the story to you. He was engaging with him. He was offering to him. He was beginning to draw this man closer. But notice he, right from the beginning, gave him space. 
As I read it to you, it says, he said, let me go and kiss my parents goodbye. Let me, let me, and, and, and Elijah says, well, what am I doing to you? What have I done? It's like, okay, it's up to you. I'm offering, there's no pressure. It's not, what do you mean, go and ask your parents? There's space. There's space. And he says, no, no, let me come. And he, he begins to draw near. And then we saw at the end, even, when Elijah is going to be taken up to heaven, and he says, no, stay here, I'm moving on. And Elijah says, no, 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 I'm not staying here, I'm coming with you. But it's space, no, no, and then it stops again. I'm at Bethel now, I'm at Jericho, look, stop, you stop here. No, I'm not going to, I want to be with you. But he's completely free. There's no, no, you better, if you want the best, you stay with me. Keep in line. No, it's not like that, it really isn't. Even Jesus was not like that. Jesus, we're told one day when he's talking about his life and how we can feed on it, he said, they ate manna in the wilderness and died. I am the true bread that came down out of heaven. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have life in yourself. It's a pretty strange saying. It says, on that day, many turned away. And he turned to his disciples and said, you going away? Are you going as well? They said, where can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. But Jesus gave them freedom. You're going away? No, 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 no. We want to be with you. There's a wonderful style that the Bible shows us. No attempt to swamp or dominate. He was to become a prophet. So he needs to hear God. He doesn't need to be swamped. If he's dependent on Elijah overmuch, how can he ever become a prophet? Elijah, what do you think? Elijah, what do you think? Elijah's gone. What do you... No, no, you've got to learn. Listen. Remember when Samuel, the boy, went to serve Eli in, in the temple as a little boy. And, and one night he hears a voice, Samuel. And he rushes to Eli. He says, yes. Eli says, go and listen. You're going to be a prophet. You need to listen to God. So discipling isn't, you only hear from me. Where did you get that from? Have you read somebody else's book? No, you, you just listen to God. Draw near to God. So Elijah draws him into a relationship, but he's not swamping him. Next, we see Elisha's response, which I find so fascinating and beautiful. It sees, you see, Elisha is cool, and, and, and he's, so, he's so clear. He's so wholehearted. It says he immediately burned the plow, slaughtered the oxen, and, and actually he just closed the door on his past, didn't he? It's like we say, you burned your bridges, there's no way back. We're not going out from here. That's, that's the end of that. And that's a phenomenal response. You see, we can try and add becoming a Christian to what we were before. Maybe you've tried that. I tried that. I became a Christian when I was a teenager and I simply added going to church to who I was before. And before, I had a value system, I had a worldview, uh, and it was, I want me happy, I want to spend my money how I want to spend it, which is in drinking and smoking and buying nice clothes and going places, good holidays, having a pretty girl on my arm to make me look good. I mean, I knew exactly what I wanted. And now I can go to heaven as well. Well, that's nice. We'll have that as well. <laughs> and my sins forgiven, yes, that will be very good for me. 
And so I took it all on. It's a great idea. And for five years, I tried that. And it doesn't work. It left me miserable. It left me feeling convicted of sin often. I'm in church and they're preaching. I think, oh, I'm not doing that. Oh, oh. And I'd be in places. Oh, someone from church. Most of the time, I knew how to be in front of Christian people, but I was a mess. I had two things going. Elisha didn't do that. He dealt with things radically. He said, well, if I'm going to be discipled, I need to let go of what I used to be. Have you done that yet? My brother, my sister, have you done that? I'm, I'm going to cut that off. See, it doesn't work till you do that. You see, Jesus will constantly offend you. He will say things that you just think, that's crazy. So you have to be pretty ruthless and get in his team. Otherwise, he will keep offending you. You'll say, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? When the apostles said that to Jesus, they thought they were being pretty good. I forgive seven times? Jesus said, 70 times seven. What? It's like infinity amount. You just keep forgiving. What? And he said crazy things, like the first should be last. And he that is Lord should be servant of all. What? And how hard it is for a rich man to even get into the kingdom. And they thought the rich were the blessed by God. And even their religiousness, they said, look at that temple, Lord. I've never seen anything like it. He said, it's all coming down. There won't be one stone on another. What? He just offended all the time. He's offending. He says things that blow your mind away. And he says this. If you want to get in the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. In fact, you have to be born again. You've got to start all over again. You've got to completely deconstruct your worldview. See, we live in a generation that's very conscious of its rights. My rights, the rights of this, the rights of that, what's coming to me, is this fair? I can make claims. That's the way, we're built this way. And I can have Jesus as well, and, and I'm still battling and pushing my way. And No, you have to deal with it all. You say, I die. It says in Romans, every mouth is closed. Your mouth been closed yet? Or have you got lots of opinions? <laughs> see, the mark of a believer is, is, see, God's not even interested in your humble opinion. <laughs> you have to burn it. You have to say, right, okay, finished. Say, That's pretty ruthless. Yeah, it is. Because he's coming with life and light and eternity and a completely different world's view. Tremendously different lifestyle. You cannot add it. You have to be ruthless. And I know it's possible to do something else because I've done it. You just become a Christian. You just add it. Add to the mix. And it doesn't work. It brings you misery. It brings you disappointing relationships because you think, what am I supposed to? Other people don't know. Are you really in? Am I supposed to make a friendship with you? I'm not sure if you are a Christian. Yeah, of course I'm a Christian. And then other people say, but you go to church. Yeah, I know I go to church. Who are you? Who are you tonight? Do people know who you are? I'd love to be your friend, but I'm not sure if you're really in. Have you really dealt with issues? Elisha said, right, that's it. Close the door. I remember I came to that after five years. I didn't do it bravely. I did it 
thinking, I am making such a mess of my life. And in the end, I said to God, not, you can have my life. No, I said, if you want this mess, you have it. I'm making such a mess. And I, for the first time in my life, I gave it all over. Literally, all over. I said, Lord, you make the choices. I lost all my friends overnight. Went through the most lonely period of my whole life. Jesus said this, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. You can have the seed. There is, look, it's a seed. A seed has got a phenomenal potential. But it has to go into the ground and die. And when it dies, it breaks up. And what's happening to it? It's been destroyed. No, no, no. Look, look, look. If it dies, it brings forth fruit. You have to let the old go. And say, here I am, Lord. Can you do anything with this? Elisha said, here I am. Disciple me. He left behind what had previously dictated his life. Have you done that? You let God change your views? You say, well, I think strongly about things. Well, why? Is it informed by God? We just need to become a disciple, something he trains. He puts his values into us. So first of all, Elisha's response was wholehearted. Secondly, he let Elijah set the course. He let Elijah give the program. And it says he followed Elijah and washed his hands. It says later, Elijah, who poured water on Elijah's hands. It wasn't like, hey, Elijah, are we doing the Deuteronomy lesson this week? Or is it Leviticus? What are we doing? What are you going to teach me? Or is it, is it this week, the fire from heaven bit? How do you do that? Tell me. How do you get the fire? Now? Is this it? No, it wasn't like that. He poured water on him. He just served him. He just got near him. He just was with him. That's how it went. Poured water on his hands. There became a loving relationship. When Elijah is taken from him, my father, my father, my father. There's kind of anguish. Not just my father, my father, twice. He's saying, oh, where are you going? They become affectionate. I guess something happened in Elijah. He was a bit of a loner before, wasn't he? I only am a left. Now he's got a tender heart, won this boy's heart. Oh, my father. Not my teacher, my father. It's a loving, caring relationship. Even at the end, when he says, now stay here. No, I'm not staying here. Now stay here. No, I'm not going to. It's become a real loving relationship. It's become an honoring relationship. What do you want from me? I want a double portion of what you've got. That's real respect. I want what you've got. I can't do it without having what you have. And when, when he is taken, he says, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. What does that mean? It means you are Israel's defense. Israel has found you because you are with, you walk with God. You have defended the nation. That's what it means. He's not talking about this fiery chariot. He's saying Israel's defense is being taken. That's manifested later when Elisha himself dies. And you can read in 2 Kings 14, 14, that when Elisha dies, they say, Elisha's died, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. Well, there's no fiery chariots then. It's, this guy's gone. This guy who, when Israel was outnumbered, 
And they said, look out, the enemy's coming. And Elisha said, open the boy's eyes. And the boy's eyes were, he said, wow, look at all these angels round about us. Look, you understand how we're defended. God's defending us. By this time now, Elisha is able to fill that gap. But he's honoring of him. Oh, you're going. What will we do without you? When he drops his mantle, he doesn't say, good grief, look at this old thing. God, he never did keep up to date, did he? I'd be glad to get rid of that. Get my cool gear on. No, it says that Elisha took his own stuff and ripped it apart. It's interesting. Before he could rip Jordan apart, he ripped apart his own self-confidence, history. It says he tore it apart. Then he went to Jordan and tore that apart. He honored him. I remember going to my old pastor, who was a Baptist pastor when he was 80-ish. He wasn't into the laying on of hands. It wasn't part of his ministry. But he was a great, great man. And I went to his home. And I went to see him. He said, oh, hello. I said, would you please pray for me? I would love something of what you've got. He said, oh, I've not done that. I said, will you? And I knelt before him and he laid his hand on me. I said, I want... I so much want what you have. I honoured him. I really honoured him. We find here there was, there was an honouring, an honouring relationship. And then you find, finally, it was a fruitful relationship. Why? Well, Elisha fulfilled so much. He actually did more than Elijah. Some people have said, hey, he did twice as many miracles, if you count them up. He did amazing things that Elijah didn't do. It's similar with Moses and Joshua. When Joshua is said, now go, I lay hands on you. He did. Moses wandered around the wilderness, fed them manna, took them out of Egypt, but couldn't take them into the land. He laid hands on Joshua, taught him. He was alongside for a long time. Then Joshua went and did things that Moses never did. He took cities. He took an inheritance. He gave the people there. Tremendous. He took them far further than Moses ever did. But Moses had instructed him. Moses had passed on. So he knew what it was to walk with God. He knew what it was for Moses to pray. He learned all sorts of stuff. And then he went and did his thing. So a disciple is not a clone. It's not doing exactly the same. There'll be things that fit the next generation that look different. He hands it on. He moves into it. It's a very, very fruitful relationship. They were not carbon copies. And he did become Israel's defense. Last of all, let me close with this. I keep looking at that clock and I'm so sorry it stopped or something. So isn't that lovely for a preacher? Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good news for me. Sorry about the tape. But... Uh, the last thing, we mustn't miss this because it's so huge. The spirit of Elijah rests upon Elisha. That is so, so important. We mustn't miss that, that that's how it concluded. See, it's one thing to learn some techniques. It's one thing to learn some insights. But in the end, in the end, if I'm going to do what you did, I'm sure that's what Elisha thought. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for all I've learned from you. But to do what you did, <laughs> I've got to have what you've got. 
I need the power you had. I've got to have that. And there must be a tremendous parallel here with the way it was with Jesus and his disciples. Surely you've spotted that. You remember when Jesus began his ministry at his baptism, it says the heavens opened and the Spirit came upon him. Although he was divine, the Spirit came upon him. His first public preach after that, Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. Jesus served under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He then said to his disciples, now you go. Well, they could say, well, how? He said, no, no, no. Before you go, wait. You will be endued with power from on high. Don't even start. Don't leave Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power. So in this case, it was Jesus who initiated that thought. He said, no, don't even start without the power. Here in the story of Elijah and Elisha, it's the other way around. Elijah is going to be taken. Elisha says, I cannot, I must have the spirit that's on you. I must have your spirit. It gets a bit confused. Your spirit? What do you mean you want the spirit of Elijah? Actually, well, not necessarily. You know, last chapter, Elijah saying, I'm miserable. I need to die. Take my life. Do you want some of that spirit? No, thank you. I want a better spirit than that. It wasn't just the spirit of Elijah as such. Although it says of John the Baptist later on, Zechariah hears this prophecy. He will come in the spirit of Elijah. What is that? Well, it's saying the same, really. He's saying the Holy Spirit will clothe him like it clothed Elijah. There'll be something of that phenomenon of power that Elijah knew that you can know. There'll be something of that power that Jesus knew that his disciples would know. How on earth can you do what Jesus started unless you've got Jesus' power to do it? It's ridiculous. It's impossible. And many would feed us these days. Oh, no, that's, that's gone. No, no. If you, need, if you need pagan England, pagan Brighton to hear the gospel, you need power. It's ridiculous to say we don't need it. Elisha was right. He said, I must have. He said, a double portion. I want that firstborn portion. I want, I want I'm your firstborn. I'm, I'm, I'm in this special relationship. Please. I must have the power that you had. And notice this, that having, he had this kind of warning. He said, he said, if you see me going, if you see me, then you'll know you've got it. And he says, he's watching, he's watching. And he sees him go. I've seen him go. That was the promise, if I see him go. There's a faith element, dear friends, in receiving power from on high. He has ascended on high. He's given the Spirit. We need to come and receive the Spirit. We need to come and take the Spirit. We need to come and drink in what he has obtained for us. We come to receive. And we have, we have, as it were, seen him go up to heaven. And the Spirit comes, and having seen it, it says he came to the Jordan, and the Jordan's opened before Elijah and Elisha. They come to the Jordan, Elijah takes his mantle, folds it up, it says, and hits the river. It opens, they walk through. Now Elijah's, Elijah's gone to glory, and Elisha comes back, and there's the Jordan. And there's the mantle. And he rips up his own and identifies with this. And he picks it up. And, he, and it says there are 50, 50 prophets on the other side watching. And, and Elisha says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He doesn't actually say, where is the spirit of Elijah? Where is the Lord? Where is Yahweh? The God of Elijah, the God who worked for Elijah. I saw him go, woof, 
And the river opens. Wow, the Spirit of the Lord is on Elisha. The Spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. The prophets shout. They come and honor him. That's been this transition. He's not only been serving, being trained, being discipled, he is now empowered. You might say, well, how do you live? How do you live the Christian? When I became a Christian, I thought, how will I keep it up? How do you, how do, you do that? How do you live a Christian life? I don't know how I could stop sinning. I don't know. I had a man called David Pawson say, the words that were used, it says, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He said that could be translated, he will plunge you into holy power. That's great, isn't it? How how am I going to live this life? Well, he'll take you and he'll plunge you into holy power. Oh, okay then. I reckon I can do it then. If he'll plunge me in holy power, if he'll pour out his spirit on me, I guess I can do it. Without that, I can learn some techniques, some insights, some attitudes, but I need power. Tonight, as we close, as we come to break bread in a moment, God is offering you a new kind of living. Have you made that choice yet? You say, right, I will, I will leave. I'll, I'll learn a new, a new worldview, a new value system. I won't just try and add it. Oh, yeah, I go to church as well now. That won't work for you. It really won't. You need to be ruthless. Maybe you've tried what I tried. It doesn't work, does it? Maybe tonight's the night. Even as you come to break bread in a moment, there'll be people there very, very happy to pray with you. I was delighted this morning to pray with a young man who came in tears and said, Terry, I've never done this. I just so want to sort myself. I've been a Christian, but tears down his face. I, I do want to do this. I want to I burn. I want to make this step. Do you want to do that tonight? There'll be people waiting for you at the communion table. I'd love to pray with you. So would you pray with me? Can I seal this with you? I'm responding to God in a new way tonight. I'm coming to ask for mercy. I'm coming to say, Lord, can we make a fresh start, please? Maybe you've never, ever done that in your whole life. You've never made a fresh start with Jesus. Please, come, do it. Don't forget, put your name down. Get in touch. We'd love to serve you. We'd love to help shape up a life that God has for you in the context of love and acceptance.